Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. So on this program, we discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world problems like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges. Today, we'll be looking at the role of social institutions in economic development, especially in neighborhoods like Harlem, the South Bronx, and Northern Manhattan. Coming out of the pandemic, with government officials turning their attention to long neglected areas like infrastructure and economic equity, what we need to do to rebuild our communities and where we gather allies and collaborators in this effort is more pressing than it's ever been in the past. Workforce development has often meant entry-level training for minimum wage jobs, but it's not at all clear that these are the kind of jobs that do much to lift families out of poverty. More importantly, with landmark legislation being implemented to jumpstart industry, to fund a revitalized infrastructure, or to invest in a green economy, a reconceptualization of workforce development offers the prospect of lifting whole communities and providing career trajectories to individuals rather than mere jobs. So today we're going to look at two of the most important kinds of institutions in our communities, educational institutions like CCNY and religious institutions like the ones who collaborated under the banner of the Resurgence Conference and see what their role might be in helping to elevate workforce development and economic development. Both kinds of organizations have roles to play in economic development. And today I'm pleased to have two leaders from these two sectors to talk about their roles in the effort to jumpstart a more inclusive and equitable economy. So our first guest is Reverend Dennis Dillon, who is the pastor of Rise Church, New York, and the publisher of the New York Christian Times newspaper. With almost 40 years in the ministry, uh, Reverend Dillon is an accomplished Bible scholar and community empowerment strategist. In addition to publishing the New York Christian Times, he's published several books, magazines, and periodicals. He's also provided leadership in several key corporate community economic benefit negotiations and has worked with many small businesses, community organizations, and major corporations to bring resources and impact to local communities. His church at, at the moment, the Brooklyn Christian Center, hosted the 2017 Economic State of Black New York, America, and the World to discuss issues like community spending power, immigration, and travel with business leaders, politicians, community leaders, and diplomats. Reverend Dillon serves on several boards, including the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce. He is the global convener for Door of Our Return, a pan-African initiative that seeks to launch a new era of cooperation between Africa and its diaspora in the 21st century. This initiative is about healing the spiritual and economic effects of the Western slave trade. Um, more recently, um, he served as the convener of, of the Resurgence Conference, which is an effort to harness the power of the black churches in the service of community and economic development, and particularly to help support emerging black-owned businesses. In recognition of Reverend Dillon's work, he's been honored with well over 200 national and local awards He's married to Dr. Zenzil Dillon, and they have five children and five grandchildren. Reverend Dillon, such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to From City to the World. Well, indeed, I thank you. I salute you, Dr. Vincent Boudreau, for your work and the awesome work that is being done at City College as well. Well, I appreciate that. I also appreciate the fact that you brought me into the resurgence um, board, uh, looking forward to working with you on, on that relationship. So let's start with the question of how you think about the relationship between your work as a member of the clergy and your advocacy around economic development. How, how do you think about the relationship between these two roles? Well, I, I think uh, traditionally, particularly more recent traditions, there has been the thinking and the perception that somehow the church ought to be separated or divorced uh, from the community and, and should not be engaged in, in, in business development, business conversation, economic development conversation. I remember uh, the first couple of times I, I was reaching out 
to banking institutions about doing more, about coming to churches, uh, doing economic literacy forums and conferences, talking about uh, first-time home buying. Uh, the perception for many is that that was literally sacrilegious, and we shouldn't be in the church talking about business and economic development and home ownership or trying to get folks to 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 take out mortgages to buy homes, as the case might be, we've seen a massive shift and change in that regard because I think folks are now coming to understand that at the end of the day, in the church, we have individuals who live in homes, they go to school, they they work jobs, uh, they have basic challenges around housing and, and health care and you name it. And thus, one of the most important places for this kind of information, particularly around economic development and economic empowerment, as I would rather, uh, you know, call it, um, uh, the church is just such a key and critical vehicle for that, particularly in the black community, since the church has traditionally been that very place where you would go to if you want to get information to our communities. So when you think about the needs of, you know, I guess particularly black-owned businesses, but but I, I, I realize your reach is really more broadly into underserved communities of color. What are their mm-hmm. most urgent needs, and, 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 and how how is the church working to, to, to assist them? And I, I think coming out of uh, COVID, and, and I pray we are truly coming out of COVID and moving to the next phase, I would identify, uh, you know, housing as a really a top issue. I think the matter of economic justice is certainly one area that more and more churches are understanding that uh, we have to address the issue of economic justice. At the end of the day, uh, you know, churches are learning and growing into a better understanding that at the end of the day, if we're talking healthcare, if we're talking housing, if we're talking uh, about the social ills, uh, if we're talking about criminal justice, and we're not providing economic opportunities, at the end of the day, we're going to walk away with people, men and women, who uh, will always be in the same socioeconomic state because we're not changing the dynamics. We're providing social service programs, and we will perpetuate them until we provide economic opportunities and and, uh, what I call a greater commerce engagement within our communities. Important message, not just for the churches, but certainly for institutions uh, like City College to continue to teach and to pursue. So thinking a little bit about businesses and entrepreneurs, you know, you, you think about what a business person needs to be successful. And of course, they need, they need a, a, an idea, they need a business plan, they need some basic skills in management and managing of finances. They often need credit. Um, as, as you look at the kinds of needs that need to be filled, where, where, where do we start by, in, in promoting uh, the success of these businesses? And I, I think you, you really touched up on it there. Um, uh, access is really the, 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 the key here. Uh, we, we have to look at how we help uh, businesses to have better access, particularly, uh, as you rightly mentioned, the underserved, the underrepresented, uh, and to a great degree, uh, those businesses that have been marginalized, those communities that have been marginalized. And so as we look at this, uh, we talk about seven points of access as, as an example. And when we talk about access, we're talking about, as you mentioned, one, access to capital. That is huge. Unfortunately, uh, for whatever the reasons are, I'm not sure that we, we, we have time to, to enumerate them, but the fact of the matter is uh, black businesses and the black community uh, do not have the same access to funding as most other communities do. Uh, 
And so how do we increase access uh, to funding? And then we're going to run into a couple of problems as we begin to provide access. And, and uh, banks talk about bankability, whether or not a business is bankable, a potential borrower is that person bankable. And oftentimes the bankability issue comes up because of the historic uh, issues of economic injustices again. So the next access then would be mentorship and, and institutional support that will facilitate the changes that we need to bring about. And then, of course, access to government and corporate contracts. Uh, we were just looking at the numbers out of New York City as an example and the fact that the former con controller for the for the city of New York is rating the city all the way down at a C and a D as it relates to how they're doing in providing um, contracts to minority-owned businesses. So we are, we are way below. If you look at the black representation as an example, that is close to 30% of the population and consider the fact that we're getting less than, than, than 1% of, of the, the minority uh, contracts, not just the general contracts, the, the, you know, I think 2.3% of the minor, minority contracts, it really shows the disparity and then the disparity within the disparity. So I really believe that these are some of the key areas where changes ought to come and certainly more churches and more organizations need to talk about these things so that we get to a place where we we can begin to level the playing field around uh, economic opportunities and particularly how we work to ensure that capital is available to all New Yorkers across the board. Reverend, before we move on, I want to I want to burrow in a little bit more deeply to to something you just said, the disparity within the disparity. You know, we have we have all of this MWBE legislation on the one hand, which seems like policies are really designed to provide opportunities to entrepreneurs that have been historically marginalized from economic processes. And then on the other hand, you know, the reality is that still small shares of these contracts are going where they need to go. And I heard yesterday 15% unemployment rate in Harlem. And you know, the reality of despite this legislation and despite all of the incentives that require public contracts to, to engage with, you know, minority and women-owned businesses, it's failing to produce the kind of economic development that it was designed for. Can you just talk a little bit about where the slippage occurs between, you know, a program that looks like it's really going to channel a lot of business to minority-owned businesses and the reality that, that things are still not um, touching ground and people are still finding themselves uh, deprived of access to so many of these opportunities. I, I think most people um, use a logical approach that obviously has proven illogical for, uh, for, our, for, for some communities. For instance, a program is available and uh, we do a press conference, the city does a press conference, the governor office does a press conference, the entity, the organization, and say, we've got this money, we've got this access, we've got these opportunities, come and get them. And the automatic assumption is that the community, in this case, let's say the African-American business community, would come and get all these opportunities that presumably are available. And then the, those who may have an interest and are looking at their capacity, they're looking at where they are, they're looking at whether or not they will really get this or they won't get this, they're, they're looking at whether or not they're qualified to get this. So at the end of the day, as I heard from one of the major banking institutions many years ago, that there's no pipeline of applicants that are coming 
from 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 these communities so so the fact that the resources are there the fact that we're announcing that these opportunities are there and we've seen this so many times it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to come to the table so literally what we have to do uh, we've seen this whether it's around you know getting more more blacks and latinos to 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 do the census and we're saying it's it's okay you can come and do it but we're now looking at the census result to say wow look at the high percentage who still did not um, fill out the census so those are historic problem how do we fix them it's like saying to blacks um, and and Latinos uh, you know uh, become um, you, you know get, get get your COVID test um, and or 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 get the vaccination and there's this huge hesitation and we're not understanding it this hesitation has resulted from the historic issues and challenges of disparity that marginalized communities have suffered from for so long. So how do we fix this, uh, Dr. Boudreau? At the end of the day, we have to invest so much more effort, so much more energy, so much more marketing, so much more education, so much more resources in our communities because an announcement to, uh, let's say, the white community, we have money, come and get it, you'll have a long line. Um, at the same time, that same announcement to the black community, uh, you may not have a line at all. So it goes back to some inherent distrust, some sense that it's not real, uh, some inner, deeper, psychological, if you will, believe that it's really not for us, that they're telling us this, but it's really not true. And, and so we're dealing with all of these factors. And uh, last year, as we did the research and conference, as, as you're well aware, uh, and there were literally five or six um, institutions that were literally giving loans to black-owned businesses based on just a character reference without the process of um, an underwriting uh, uh, criteria, and yet we did not have a pipeline of applicants coming to the table. And I'd like to talk to you, Reverend Dillon, a little bit about that conference and the work that you and others have done to pull the black churches together to assist in the situation you just laid out. So we have opportunities available to members of the black community and Latino community, a pervasive sense that despite these announcements, this is not for us. The historical accumulation of disappointment kind of leads people to sit on the sidelines and to imagine that it doesn't matter what, what the announcement is. It's, it's, it's just not going to work out for some reason. And so you've been working with this historic conference, which has been around for decades, to, to change that equation. And I, I wanted to ask you, first of all, to tell us a little bit about Resurgence and the history of, of the conference and the people involved in it, and then talk a little bit about you know, how you got involved and, and what its main accomplishments have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and again, uh, we did the first conference in in 1994, um, thanks to the, the the collaboration of over 300 clergy leaders. We thought that, uh, given the fact that the church, uh, particularly the Black Church, has historically been uh, the most trusted institution in Black America. And by the way, I use church in a very broad sense from uh, the Greek word uh, ecclesia um, or synagogue, which literally means the gathering place. So if it's a mosque or a temple, um, we still, the, the, the concept of church is the gathering of the people. So from that vantage point and, and the, the, the point being, the church being a trusted institution, we gathered uh, back then several hundred uh, churches, key uh, ministers and leaders from all across the city of New York 
to say we have to come together and we have to really begin the dynamics of, of, of an economic renaissance or an economic revival. And of course, we launched that many uh, mainstream media like Cringe New York um, referenced the conference as an, a, an entity that has really created a robust uh, economic revival in, in the city of New York. We've seen churches uh, pulling their business members in their congregation together, uh, helping them to gain access to, to loans and funding resources. We see churches organizing individuals to form more business enterprises, and we saw a lot of churches that grew out of this, uh, starting what we would call CDC back then and probably still today, community development corporation, doing uh, affordable housing development projects and a host of others. So we do know the power of the church, the power uh, of any church, by the way. Uh, historically, the, the, the church, the uh, the global church, the European church, uh, has uh, played a significant role, uh, as quiet as sometimes it, it may be kept, in fueling economic growth and economic development. So that's been a part of our commitment and passion, and I came to this work uh, frustrated in my effort to save young people years ago and recognizing that 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 if we do not help to guide them to create their own jobs in their own communities, uh, we're powerless to create the change. If we do not instill in them uh, what I call a culture of commerce over just a commerce of culture, we're powerless to create the change. And if we focus purely on economic development, which most times is done by external developers, and I mean developers external to the local community, and redirect the focus to what I call economic empowerment, which is now beginning to put the tools and the resources in the hands of the community themselves, the leaders within the communities, the church playing a lead role so that we can actually facilitate what I call on-the-ground economic development initiatives. And we've seen successes. We've lost much I'm bothered by the fact that Cranes New York, their 2022 book of list uh, report does not have a single black-owned business listed among their 25, uh, you know, largest minority-owned enterprises 15 or so years ago. Nine to 11 of that list were black-owned businesses. So we've seen those changes. So there obviously have to be this resurgence move to see if we could create an economic revival. That's really kind of striking that, that, that so many um, black-owned businesses that, that, that used to be on that list are, are, are not in evidence today. Um, let me talk, let's talk just a little bit about the moment that we're in right now. I said at the beginning of, of, of my introduction, you, know, you think about where we're at coming out of COVID with a federal government spending really in, in, in ways that we haven't seen in decades on, um, on various programs to stimulate the economy, the, the, the CHIPS legislation, the, the you know, legislation that's going to be supporting green jobs, the infrastructure bill. We also have the, the prospect of a new industry as, as cannabis gets rolled out in New York State. And so there are opportunities, and and I've heard you say that opportunities have often bypassed your target audience. It, they don't seem like opportunities. We don't have the the access or the skills to take advantage of them, or even uh, the sense that this is an opportunity for me. But if you were to think strategically about the opportunities of this moment, what seems most robust to you and, and how can we position our communities to be better able to take advantage of these opportunities? I'm excited about the rising uh, population. I'm excited about the Gen Yers or whatever we would call them and to, to probably a lesser degree the millennials as well. Uh, I think foundationally it starts uh, in, in two places, uh, three places. Uh, number one, uh, it would be ideal if it would start in the home. Uh, my own experience uh, just and my own observation is that those who are cultured around 
businesses uh, generally grow with a mindset to do business and to be in business. Uh, unfortunately, in, 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 in our community, for the most part, we are trained, we're skilled, and we grow with a concept to, to get a college education uh, and go get a job as opposed to, to creating a job or creating opportunities and creating jobs for others. So I do believe that those three institutions, the family, the church, and the educational institution like a city college and the great work that you're doing at city college and certainly through um, you know, this program, you know, City to the World, how important it is that we are really recultivating the mind, the consciousness, the thinking of young black Latinos uh, with a business mindset, with a commerce culture, as opposed to just a, a you know, and for me, the idea of creating this, this commerce culture, this culture of commerce is to get us to more think business. Uh, this also means that there has to be a commitment in this educational process. And again, the next institution, the church, can play a role in this. And that is how do we really help to break the what I call consumer mindset that drives uh, so many, particularly in, in black and brown communities. We have an idea that our greatest high is to is to shop, to spend, as opposed to our greatest high is to earn and, and, and to grow and to invest and to create opportunities for others, to create businesses, uh, to be a business leader, a business owner. Um, and so it's a recultivating that I believe is key to this process. And yes, when we look at the green economy and to the degree that that has missed us for the to a great degree or missed our community to a great degree um the cannabis another new economy it is certainly one that we want to make sure that our community is postured and positioned to ensure that it is not another big miss right it's hard to remember a moment in time when among young people especially the idea of being an entrepreneur of being a, a creator of a business it has been um, more attractive, more you know, kind of sexier for young people. Um, and I wonder if, you know, I see that across the student population in City College, and we have all kinds of different programs to teach entrepreneurship and to help students get uh, a, an idea for a business and bring it to market. I ask, do you see the same attraction to entrepreneurship? In, in the communities that are that are in your churches and particularly the younger members of those communities. Is that something that you see as capturing the imagination of young people these days? I think we're slowly getting there. Uh, I've developed a concept that's called the mom and pop syndrome. And the concept uh, behind that is I find that lots of young people, when they saw their parents struggle, their mom and pop struggle in business, many of them reject that pathway. Um, and and it, it's historic because it goes back to the fact that we've seen very little uh, businesses that got started in our communities that get passed down to the children successfully and to the grandchildren successfully. Very few of those businesses exist in our communities. We've seen in other communities, be it a restaurant or whatever the, the business might be, that it gets passed down to two, three generations. Now, the reason why I, I refer to this as the mom and pop syndrome is that we've seen so much struggle. Children have seen their parents struggle so much to make ends meet that they make decisions early in life. I don't want to go through what my parents went through. So they're never seeing the successes because for the most times um, we create businesses that survive and hardly ever businesses that succeed. And the reason why our businesses only thrive to the survival level and hardly the success level, it is the crossover. And it's usually access to capital that create that crossover. And because there has been such 
hardships in gaining access to capital, we have seen very few businesses that have actually break that struggle syndrome, if you will, and begin to succeed at a level where the children can begin to say, wow, mom and dad, I'm going to take over this business and then take it to the next level and the next level before long it becomes a major corporation. I, I oftentimes go back what happened to the Madam C.J. Walker Corporation uh, that doesn't exist today. You know, the, the great black inventors of, 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 of the refrigerator, where is the P.C. Richards today? Uh, you, and so if, how do we create, maybe we need a curriculum around this, uh, you know, Dr. Boudreaux, how do we create um, a process where uh, the children growing up are seeing success in their mother and father's operation that they'll be willing to say, that's what I want to do. Mom and dad, please leave this business for me and I'll take it to the next level. That's a, that is a great thought and something I think that as an institution, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a curriculum where the sons and daughters of business people that have been kind of mom and pop stores come in and, and, and study, how do you scale up? How do you institutionalize? How do you make sure that a restaurant or a store or whatever it might be isn't dependent on the founder for, for prosperity? And now I would like to welcome our second guest, Dr. Angela Limpusis, to the conversation. Dr. Limpusis is the Interim Executive Director of City College's Wrangell Infrastructure Workforce Development Initiative. We call that RIWI, R-I-W-I. So you'll hear us say in RIWI, and that's what it means, the Wrangell Infrastructure Workforce Development Initiative. RIWI has received a $200,000 environmental job training grant from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency under Dr. Lampousis' directorship, and the center itself has received generous support from the federal government via advocacy from our congressman, Congressman Espiat, and our governor, Governor Kathy Hochul, has matched that support as well. So we are grateful as a college to, to the support we're getting both from state and federal government. Dr. Lempusis has been a lecturer in the Department of Earth Atmospheric Sciences at City College since 2013. His teaching and curriculum have been recognized nationally and internationally. He's received awards for his teaching. But he's also a member of our faculty that thinks particularly about teaching non-traditional students, working students, uh, younger students who are maybe not pursuing a degree at City College, but looking to get certification or a skill to, to get to that next level in their work. Since 2010, Dr. Lynn has been an active member of the ASTM International Committee on Environmental Assessment, Risk Management, and Corrective Action. In 2017, he received a $70,000 grant from the National Institute of Standards and Technology to support geoscientists. In 2019, he received a 2019 ASTM International Professor of the Year Award. I remember that award. We were deeply proud of him when he got it. He also serves on the Committee on Education of the American National Institute of Standards and is a board member of the Brownfield Coalition of the Northeast, and that's called BCONE, BCONE. He's a coordinator of the annual agricultural geophysics workshop at Cornell University's Long Island Horticultural Research and Extension Center at Riverhead, New York, which offers hands-on demonstrations with geophysical equipment for CCNY students and Long Island vineyard-guided tours. Dr. Lempusis is, sorry, associate editor of Fast Times, the quarterly magazine on near-surface geophysics of the Environmental and Engineering Geophysical Society. Dr. Lempusis. Um, I'm glad, given all your activities, you have time for us. Welcome to From City to the World. Thank you, President Boudreau. It is my distinct honor to join you today and uh, learn from your program as well. Uh, your conversation so far with Reverend Dillon has been very, very inspiring. So let's just talk um, to start. For people that don't know the kind of parameters of, the, of RIWI, of the Wrangell Initiative in Workforce Development, Tell us a little bit about this program. The inception, first of all, of the program belongs to Congressman Rangel himself and the conversation he had over the years with uh, faculty from CCNY, uh, particularly Professor Robert uh, Buzz Paswell, 
this team uh, within CCNY grew uh, over time to include uh, Professor Michael Bobker and his Building Performance Lab, along with many, many other talented people from uh, City College of New York. And over the last two years, this effort was accelerated, and this is also thanks to you, President Boudreau, and your team, um, since there has been a lot of mobilization of resources uh, and partners around this initiative. So what this initiative is, is all about, it is to prepare the local workforce to enter existing and emerging uh, career sectors by offering training in, in new and advanced skills in different infrastructure uh, areas. Uh, that includes transportation, energy, buildings, water, food, uh, waste, and uh, digital infrastructures. The purpose of the program is to access and affect, uh, in a positive way, populations that they are not typical of uh, the City College campus, for example. This includes uh, veterans, uh, it includes uh, unemployed or underemployed uh, people, the previously incarcerated, it also includes recent high school graduates. And by doing so, uh, it, it provides an equal opportunity, if you will, in a historically uh, unequal infrastructure labor market. The, the strong points of this experience involve a lot of experiential learning. It involves networking. And it involves a particular structure that is very flexible based on um, the level of the skills and the education that different people have when they come in. In collaboration with our partners, community and industry and government, the, the premise is that we will enable a very diverse group of individuals. And by diversity, in this sense, I don't refer only to uh, race uh, and other things, but in terms of educational level and job experiences and things like this. Maybe I can close here this first uh, uh, piece of information by going forward in time to September 9th, that it was really a momentous occasion from the inception of, uh, you know, Congressman Rangel, we we came to realize uh, under your leadership, uh, President Boudreau, this amazing uh, critical mass of dignitaries, uh, starting with the Secretary of Labor, Walsh and uh, the New York State Governor, Representative Espaillat, and of course, uh, Congressman Rangel himself. When the Secretary of Labor, when, when Secretary Walsh came, one of the things you whispered in my ear was that there was a specific opportunity that was opened by the infrastructure um, legislation. It revealed a kind of strategic analysis that's necessary in this field of work about the relationship between new laws that are passed and the unmet labor requirements of meeting those laws. And could you just kind of walk us through what you saw in the infrastructure bill that got you so excited? Thank you for mentioning that, and thank you for uh, uh, being able to deliver this message, if you will, to the Secretary himself. As we all learn about the new environment, uh, of course, the Biden-Harris administration and the bipartisan infrastructure bill is going to be something that will affect, as, as it has been called, the generational uh, change uh, regarding the infrastructure. It will affect so many sectors of the infrastructure that this is really hard to fathom, so I will try to at least capture some of it. Uh, and maybe I, we can use as an example the safety training. Um, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration under the Department of Labor has a long history since 1970 of uh, protecting uh, workers, ensuring the worker safety uh, in the workplace. Uh, through uh, particular types of training for general industry and for construction. But with all of the innovation that is happening around us every day, it has become a challenge simply to follow what is happening, let alone to create a program that reflects that uh, change and enable 
faculty and in turn the students to be able to get these jobs in a timely fashion. So it's a combination of timeliness. Uh, we have to be very timely about this. So traditional academic courses cannot serve this purpose because it takes too long to develop them. Um, they're very long by themselves in terms of the delivery. And by the time we finish a course, uh, the infrastructure in this case will have moved ahead already. So it is a moving target in, on so many levels. And one thing that we're attempting to do here, as far as I'm aware, for the first time uh, in a so uh, systematic way, is to capture these updates, the regulatory updates, technological updates, uh, scientific updates, and also some knowledge of the market. Now we have a war, for example, going on in Ukraine that affects so many levels and uh, the distribution chains. Um, so we need to have this additional knowledge of the market. And developing all of this knowledge at the same time, hopefully we bring people to a point of self-awareness that this is how much I know, this is what I can do in the next period of my life, and this is the ecosystem that I can operate. So it's a combination of self-awareness for the individual who comes in, uh, and also a, a advanced understanding of that ever-evolving ecosystem, if you will. And let's talk, Dr. Limpusis, a little bit about infrastructure. We kind of jumped in to this conversation of RIWI without, without really mapping out what we're talking about at City College when we say um, infrastructure. So can you, you talk a little bit about all the different fields of endeavor that, that students in this program can train in? We have identified uh, five focus areas related to infrastructure, including the built environment, transportation, energy, water, and food. There, in some different classifications, there may be additional focus areas, but these are uh, five areas that we have identified as the, uh, the ones that um, are more relevant in this environment. And we have come up with a model to enable people, first of all, to engage with our program, uh, go through a baseline training that will give them an overview of all of the above, uh, in addition to some mainstream training that uh, would probably help many people to find employment quickly. Uh, this includes, for example, the 30-hour OSA training for construction, the 10-hour site safety training by the New York City Department of Buildings, and other types of training that they're brief enough to include um, within a month, uh, and enough in a way for people to receive an orientation about um, how far they want to go. Those individuals who finish this baseline training um, they have the choice to specialize in one of the focus areas, and we do this in the second month. You probably notice that the duration here is um, much shorter in a way than a traditional academic semester that is, goes on for 14 weeks. This type of training is intended to place people uh, as fast as possible to some kind of employment, even temporary, on their way to grow more professionally uh, and also receive additional education and learning. So the, the ultimate goal here, and we call this the catalyst training that follows the, the first step, um, the ultimate goal is for people to identify one or two areas that they feel more comfortable, they feel more intrigued, and guide them through a process uh, that includes internships, um, hands-on training on campus, networking, and other professional development opportunities to become better positioned in this a very dynamic and uh, job environment and job market that we've described uh, a few minutes ago. Really interesting. 
I think, you know, as you say, one of the things built into this curriculum is, is the flexibility to take little chunks of training, use that in the workforce, and then at some later point decide you want to get to the next level of, of, of training. I think that, that makes it a very, very dynamic program and, and it embeds continuing education into the program. It's also important to say, I think, to, to listeners that we anticipate the majority of the participants in the program will be funded via scholarships. We want to make sure that people who don't have money for tuition are not being dissuaded from, from joining this program because they maybe don't have money to pay for it. So, so I want to encourage people listening to this program really to explore the opportunities of this program. Uh, Dr. Limpusis, we hear a lot about the need not just to rebuild America's infrastructure, but to rebuild the infrastructure in a way that is eco-friendly, that integrates digital and other kinds of smart technology. We also know that there are some foundational skills in infrastructure work that are going to persist. I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you're thinking about the relationship between the digital skills that people need to build the infrastructure of tomorrow and the skills that are sort of still relevant from, from other iterations of infrastructure uh, development. Thank you. This is actually a, a critical difference in today's uh, training uh, environment. Um, I think we can use again the example of safety training and uh, we can pick any infrastructure focus area that is um, considered now advanced or um, developing at an accelerated rate. For example, uh, communications and wind power towers, um, they all include people, workers, uh, you know, different skill, set, skill levels to go up to these amazing heights. So some of the traditional trainings, types of training that ensure their safety, they're still relevant, of course. Um, they will be up there operating at a, extreme heights and they need to have, uh, you know, personal full arrest systems and they have to know how to react. Uh, they have to know how to work um, collaboratively uh, in a safe way to complete the assignment. But, of course, the assignment now is different. And that's where what you said uh, makes a lot of sense the digital skills uh, and the different knowledge of the type of computer language that we need to to operate, uh, to be able to interpret data uh, as they come in real time or in almost real time. So now we, we do have installations in infrastructure that this was not true 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago that there was an initial plan and then there was an effort to just follow this one plan. Now uh, there's data collections on site as the projects evolve. And so there is a real need for people to interpret this data in real time. So here's an example of a combination of traditional safety training that is still required, is, is essentially the same, but we have to provide these other skills that were not there before, and now they're very relevant. And we have to do this uh, successfully, and uh, we have to deliver it on time again. The timing is very important in this equation. So I have a, a final question for you, and it, it kind of echoes a question I asked uh, Reverend Dillon at the start, which is, you know, City College as an institution hasn't always focused a lot of energy on students who were not you know, seeking a bachelor's degree or a master's degree at the college. I wonder if you have thoughts about the the role of, a, of an institution like City College in the kind of workforce uh, development uh, project that you've been moving forward. On a fundamental level, of course, City College is the upward mobility machine for 175 years, and we're very proud of this tradition. Um, so this this part is there. On the other hand, uh, as you uh, alluded, there has been between the academic education and the continuing the continuing education, there has been a disconnect. Not just at City College, but in in um, most colleges uh, and universities around the nation. Uh, I think this uh, is 
changing rapidly in our case. And I think as far as I'm aware, at least for the United States, this is really a pioneering um, event on its own merit, the fact that we have now uh, engineering professors and science professors getting involved, being integrated into professional training. I think the benefits are, are really hard to to um, quantify. Uh, they're all positive. And I would like to close with uh, something that, uh, a personal note, not mine, but one of our, of our board members, who shared the fact that his traditional education was very hard for him. He was dyslexic, and he had a very untraditional education in infrastructure. He was a college dropout, went into construction, then joined the union, and he got several certifications as an engineering technician while studying part-time for a college degree. Mm-hmm. And now he's the principal of a major infrastructure company. So here's a, a prime example of a totally... Uh, non-traditional trajectory that we hope to replicate uh, through the Rangal Development Workforce Development Program. That's a great point to end on. There is so much undeveloped potential in our communities, and I, I mean that both in relationship to the work that Reverend Dillon has been doing through Resurgence and his other initiatives, and also what the what the Rangel uh, Infrastructure Workforce Development Program has on offer, and and figuring out every way not just to connect individuals to opportunities, but to make sure they have the structure to make these opportunities accessible. Uh, Reverend Dillon talked about the areas of accessibility that need to be improved in order for there to be success among uh, business people of color. So, you know, what a great way uh, to end the program. I want to thank you out there for listening to From City to the World. A special thanks Really heartfelt thanks to our two guests, Reverend Dennis Dillon, pastor of Rise Church, New York, and Dr. Angela Lampusis, interim executive director for City College's Rangel Infrastructure Workforce Development Initiative. Gentlemen, you are both doing literally and figuratively God's work in our communities, and so real honor to have you both here. Reverend Dillon, um, I, I owe you a call, and we need to put our heads together to, to keep uh, Keep talking, and uh, Dr. Lempusis, you will see me almost every day here on campus. <laughs> um, this show was produced by yours truly, Vince Boudreau. The audio editor is Angela Harden. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>